Well, for a while now, I've kept a file of road sermons to be used in pulpits like this one. But I did ask your worship, worship team if there was a theme for the month or the summer, and Ruth uh, sent me this short paragraph that appears in the worship, worship section of your website. Um, you may have seen it there. Uh, and it's printed in your order of service, I noticed today. But I wanna, I wanna read it out loud. Sometimes it happens in a small room when your mind quiets and the rhythm of your breath begins to lead. Sometimes it happens in a conversation when you take a leap of faith and step into a hard conversation. Sometimes it is that crazy notion that will not be pushed aside and you make an about turn that leads you to an unimaginable freshness of life and purpose. Sometimes it's showing up in the streets, in a rotunda, in a meeting, in a covenantal community. Sometimes it's showing up for yourself. The religious life is meeting the moment over and over again. Well, for a while now, I just considered just reading those words and asking that we all spend the sermon time quietly together, considering how meeting the moment works in our own lives. And I hope you will do that. I hope you will do that on your own, in your own, on your own time, because my own reflections took me to some surprising, though not totally unfamiliar places. Mostly, it called me to consider the challenges to the religious life, which is meeting the moment over and over again. I found myself drawn almost immediately to that passage from our town, which I shared earlier, because it points to what seems to be a deeply human tendency to let the moments of our lives pass with neither meeting nor notice until the reality of loss forces our attention. The return to a day in a life now past reminds us of the preciousness of the ordinary. The sweetness of this heightened awareness of a young woman who is mourning the moments of both her past and her future makes this particularly poignant. But when I revisited the play in the context of meeting the moment, I found a bigger message. Later in that same scene, after Emily has returned to the graveyard, Simon Stimson, another among the dead, says, yes, now you know. Now you know. That's what it is to be alive, to move about in a cloud of ignorance, to go up and down, trampling on the feelings of others, of those about you, to spend time and waste time as though you had a million years to always be at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. 
Now you know that the happy existence you wanted to go back to, ignorance and blindness, to which Mrs. Gibb, Gibbs re replies spiritedly, script note, Simon, that ain't the whole truth and you know it. Well, it ain't the whole truth. But is, in my experience, some truth? And it is the part of the truth that stands between me and the religious life. There is much that I love about my life right now, especially as I enter the eighth decade. I have my own versions of clocks ticking and sunflowers and food and coffee, new iron dresses and hot baths that I recognize every day as gifts. And there is plenty that seems to capture my attention, mostly when my experiences, when my expectations are not met. The, magnitude, the, the magnetic pull of wanting more or better or easier or more predictable, the sense of entitlement that moves me to complain about the least inconvenience or turn an unmet expectation into a fit of impatience, all serve as the blinders to the larger story of my life. To meet the moment requires me to reject being, in the words of Simon Stinson, at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. And sometimes I succeed. I live in a small community near the North Shore of Lake Superior. When I worked at the Duluth Church, I drove the 18 miles home many winter nights in the snow and the dark. One night, I hit a deer with my car. The airbag deployed. The damage to the car was, it turned out, substantial. The damage to the deer, unknown, because it disappeared into the woods along the road, and I'm sad for the deer. And I will say that it provided for me a moment of meeting. I sat in the car, I rolled down the windows to let the airbag stuff out the window, and I found after a moment of reflection that I found, felt mostly only gratitude and an overwhelming awareness of what it means to be a person of privilege. I was driving home from my job to my home, an employed homeowner. I used my cell phone to call my husband who had another car. He came and we called AAA <clears throat> uh, to and the AAA guy recommended that we just have the car towed and then charge the insurance company because it probably wasn't covered by our AAA plan because it would be too far. The whole experience delayed 
my normal return home by less than 30 minutes. The car was towed and repaired in a week. I missed no week, a job, a car, a home, a willing husband, a second car, and insurance that paid for the repairs and the towing. Now, it might not come as a surprise to many of you that when I mentioned this incident in passing to others, the immediate response was to, I hit a deer on my way home was, oh, how terrible. But lest this devolve now into a parable about accentuating the positive, let me say that it was so much more than that for me. It was a moment of showing up for myself, of recognizing the tremendous unearned freedom and grace that followed me, of which I live too much of the time essentially oblivious. Like Emily in our town, there is much that I tend to see through the lens of potential scarcity. The perception of scarcity at all levels stands squarely in the way of meeting the moment. This is a narrative we, most, we mostly believe about the 1% of the population who control a ginormous percentage of the material wealth in America corporate entrepreneurial hoarders whose capacity for accumulating and protecting assets clearly shapes the US economy and government as well as the fate of many of our citizens. And there is an aspect of what motivates that kind of hoarding that I recognize in myself and it is a motivation that I meet in moments in which I must rest myself free lest I fall prey to the crippling fear and discontent that lie between me and the religious life. A bit of my story here, my early life was spent on Rainy Lake, on the border between Minnesota and Canada. My parents worked during the 30s and the 40s as caretakers for um, other island owners, some are people whose material wealth and privilege allowed them to spend the shank of the summer away from the heat of the, of the city, enjoying uh, pastimes of leisure. Between the 4th of July and Labor Day, my mother and father were at the beck and call of their often demanding employers who clearly saw my parents as servants, roles they played with grace and competence, knowing that come September, the lake and the place would be theirs again for the next three seasons. In 1944, an eight-acre island owned by a Norwegian physician from Minneapolis came for sale. Through the trust and generosity of two of my father's friends, my parents purchased the place, and along with their three teenage children, 
turned it into a small fishing resort. With luck and pluck, fueled by resourcefulness and a genuine spirit of hospitality, the place became an unqualified success. I was born there and grew up in that same spirit. My parents, as landholders, became financially secure. Their children went to college. They built a modest home on the mainland where we lived in the winters. They retired in the early 70s, and for over a decade, they reveled, they traveled and shared their island, also reveled, and shared their island as a place to bring their family and many, many friends. And through some careful planning, they were able to leave the place and the legacy to what has become five generations. There I have spent some part of every summer for 70 years as a solitary child, treasured but often left to my own devices, as a teen and a young adult employed by the resort, later as a parent with my own children, and now as an orphan charged with my older siblings and their children to carry on this legacy. It is easy to romanticize this as a story of determination and hard work, of opportunity and trust, of willingness and of grace, a love story. And it is all that. And it is significantly a story of social mobility and a path to privilege. So now one might ask, how is this a challenge to meeting the moment? Well, here's how. Each summer, for a day or two at the end of my stay on Rennie Lake, I meet a heart-stopping sunset with feelings of dread and resistance. I face the western horizon feeling like the god of Genesis on the first day of creation. And still it is, is as though there is not enough. Not enough that the privilege of a single day in that place and time with its beauty and tradition is more than most of the world experiences in a lifetime. Not enough that I have had 71 years of good health and plenty. Not enough. And I am in that moment aware that one big wind driven by the caprice of global warming, could flatten every tree and every building. Or a fire, or an accident that would place a pall of tragedy and interrupt the relative state of equanimity that my family has enjoyed for seven decades, and alter the nature of this place forever. And I know that I am powerless to control those factors. And yet, I thought, I think, that if I could build a wall, 
to stop the wind or sell my soul to Satan or promise an unknown God that I would guarantee that place would be there for my great-grandchildren, I would be sorely tempted. I am in touch in those moments with my own greediness and desperation to protect what I have allowed to believe, myself to believe, is mine. But of course, none of it is mine, except the memories and the power of the story, of determination and hard work, of opportunity and trust, of willingness and grace, a love story that will be woven into my story and that of my family for as long as we remember. And the reality of the humbling privilege and the spiritual grounding that is mine to use to call forth something of worth and value for others. That any person feels entitled unequivocally to claim and protect a share of this earth and its bounty for their own exclusive use without regard for those who are without access to the most basic resources has become the law of this land. And it is, a temp it is tempting to assign this claim exclusively to those who are using the power of the American electoral system to protect their assets. But in my own moments of meeting, I see myself, and I know that it is a moral and religious challenge to say, stay connected to a healthy awareness that the more I have, the more I have to give, instead of the more I have, the more I have to lose. Stay awake, the Buddhists urge. Stay awake to the truth that all meaning and value that I have, give, I have given and have received show up in a blessed chain of moments, connected across time by grace and luck, claimed and sustained by love and commitment to honor the possible and to be grateful for the miracle that is my very existence. My spiritual challenge again and again is to remember that this life I enjoy is a gift to be cherished and offered in the meaning, uh, in the meeting of many, many moments. In the summer of 2015, my husband and I attended the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly in Portland, Oregon. We took the train. It was a fascinating journey in all ways. We stayed in a comfortable hotel. We ate some wonderful food. We did some sightseeing and hung out with some of our favorite people, like we do at those events. We attended the worship and the plenaries and the workshops. We have lots of photos. But the image that has stayed with me in my mind came at the final hour of our time in Portland. We had eaten a pretty swell lunch. 
had packed up and were waiting with our rolling bags to catch the light rail to the train station. Across the tracks, I could see a Wells Fargo AT bank with an ATM, and I suggested to John that we probably should have a little cash. And I ran across to get some for the incidental um, expenses we might have on the train. As I approached the bank, I noticed a young man sitting on his backpack by the wall, and as I got close, he said, can you help me? I put up a finger and said, just a minute. And a voice in my head said, this machine only gives $20 bills. If I give him money, am I gonna ask for change? <laughs> From another part of my head, the voice of my better self said, really, you just spent $40 on lunch. The machine obediently processed my request and gave me the money in haste. I folded a $20 bill and pressed it into his hand. There was no meeting in that moment. I may not have even made eye contact. I turned and headed back toward my husband when I heard footsteps and a voice, ma'am. And I turned around and right behind me, I saw a tall, brown-skinned young man with beautiful, tired eyes that looked directly into mine. And he said, thank you so much. Can I give you a hug? And without a second's hesitation, I opened my arms and for a long moment of true meeting, I held my own tall sons and every mother's child. What is your name? I said. Damon, he said. You are welcome, Damon, I said. My name is Karen. My hope for you is that you can find a way to not have to do this. Yes, ma'am, he said. We held on to each other for another few seconds, let go, and I was across the street holding on to my husband with sobs catching in my throat. I am so aware of the tendency in myself and others to project particular meaning when such a meeting, the moment occurs, and even as I feel the desire to do so right now, I trust that everyone here has already, for better or for worse, applied some social commentary on privilege or vulnerability or racism or whatever to this story. So, I didn't share this story with anyone for nearly two weeks. When I finally did, I shared it with my spiritual director and, I, and he said, it sounds like a God moment. Not my language, but I knew what he meant. What I think now is that I did not share it because I wanted to just capture and hold that moment, to recognize that it was a meeting the moment for me and for him, 
and that it was undoubtedly significant for each other in much, much different ways. I still don't want to analyze it or dissect it, attach to it pride or shame or embarrassment or virtue or insensitivity or risk assessment. I simply want to hold lightly the presence and power of that memory to let it live and work its meaning into the whole of my life. The religious life, I am told, is meeting the moment over and over again. And for me, this was a moment of many meetings. I have been blessed with both privilege and the capacity to receive the invitation to the religious life over and over again in spite of the challenges it presents. I am grateful today for the invitation to be here and to speak this truth. May your lives be likewise blessed with many moments of meeting. Thank you.